This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to another episode of The Vine Guy. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg. And in this episode, I'm welcoming Owen Rowe winemaker, David O'Reilly. Now, David hails from a large family from the County Coven, Ireland. David O'Reilly has been working with wine for over 30 years. Trust me, he looks a lot younger. He lived in war-torn Belfast in Northern Ireland, where he experienced the troubles firsthand. After much heartbreak, his parents and 11 11 brothers and sisters fled to the safety of the rugged north coast of British Columbia in Canada. Here, he embraced his love of nature by living off the land with farming and fishing, which centered his desire to farm and live simply. David first developed his interest in wine while attending college in California, where he met his future wife, Angelica. Together, they were eager to embrace a life of the vine and discover their love of farming and raising a family in some of the finest vineyards in the West Coast of the United States. Now, in addition to creating a life in the Willamette Valley of Oregon, making Pinot Noir, David is passionate about winemaking in the Yakima Valley of eastern Washington State. For O'Reilly, this region represents the new world with an outstanding opportunity to create wines that show old world expression. You hear a little bit more about that. From sites in this region, he's able to harvest fruit that best translates naturally into his signature style. Owen Rowe was established using images associated with the iconic Confederate Owen Rowe O'Neill, who helped rally the Irish against the English parliamentary forces. Beautiful imagery and perfumed wines are a hallmark of the brand and its association with the history of the island. David Welcome to the Vine Guy podcast. Thank you, Scott. Such a pleasure to have you. Now, of course, I have to ask, what's a nice Irish boy like you doing making wine in Washington State? Well, you know, I do like to tell people tongue in cheek that, uh, you know, I'm really kind of pursuing an Irishman's dream, and that's by earning a living by drinking. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, I love the Pacific Northwest. Uh, if you've been to uh, both the Willamette Valley and to Eastern Washington, I mean, you'll very quickly see with the beautiful mountains, you know, the gorgeous coastline, uh, just amazing agriculture. It's just a wonderful place to live. It's a wonderful place to raise your family. And, uh, you know, and it just happens to have some of the best uh, vineyards in the new world. Yeah, but Yakima Valley, I mean, I have been there and it is really stark. I mean, it is barren. It's got rocky soils. Why Yakima Valley? It's pretty unusual and yet pretty cool that you're doing this. Well, you know, it's a good question because, um, you know, there are times where, you know, I ask myself that question all the time, you know, because it, it, while it can be somewhat unforgiving, you know, you talk about how arid it is. We, on our vineyards, we only get between five and seven inches of precipitation a year. And I always have to qualify. Yeah, a year. And I have to qualify because it's not just, you know, rainfall. It's usually, you know, almost half of that is in the form of snowfall. And so it means that during the growing season, we really get just, I mean, almost no moisture. So all of our, you know, all of our irrigation comes from uh, the snow melt from these huge mountains. You know, the Cascades 
feature very, very prominently in eastern Washington. They're right in front of our vineyards. Mount Adams is about 12,500 feet high, and Mount Rainier is about 14,500. So, you know, they're, they're snow covered year round. And, you know, our, our local little snow peak, our mountain peak where the kids go skiing, is not overly high. It only goes up to about five, 6,000 feet, but it usually gets about 14 feet of snow. Well, so obviously you're irrigating. So we we must irrigate. You know, we we would not be able in in our area. You, you really have to go right into the mountains, into like Blue Mountains and Walla Walla, to experience any sort of measurable rainfall. So you really do need a little more than about twenty inches of rain a year to do you know any meaningful dry farming. And, uh, you know, again, we only get around five to seven. Wow. Wow. And so what uh, what are you farming? What are you growing there? So we had, you know, originally we had um, about 10 acres of cherries and uh, it's a beautiful area for cherries. But, you know, we're up off the valley floor. So our elevation uh, at our vineyard is about 1,300 feet elevation. And, uh, and so that's, a, that's about four or 500 feet off the valley floor. So there's really no moisture in these soils. So historically, you know, the, the hills were all, you know, barren. Uh, you couldn't really grow the sort of apples or even hops that the, settled, the first settlers came in because they would, they would actually harvest right on the valley floor where there'd be some moisture and also proximity to the rivers. And so uh, we're way off the floor. And as a result, remember where we are, we're, we're so far away from the Pacific Ocean that, you know, what really kind of tempers our climate is, you know, how close you are to the, to the floor. And so if you can get about two to 400 feet off the valley floor, no matter where you are, you'll be off, you know, some of the, the kind of the real dangerous freezes and frosts that come in wintertime and, and, uh, and also in, in, uh, in fall that could, you know, shorten your growing season. And as a result, you need to have that, you know, the irrigation that's up there. So what varieties take to that kind of climate? Well, you know, while we're, you know, we're dry, we're not necessarily super, super hot where we, where we are. So we're looking at, you know, depending on the soil type, it really does you know, kind of the soil, the slope, the exposure really makes that determination what really is the best grape for that, uh, for that particular um, spot in your, in your land. And, and it's really a good question, Scott, because when I first moved there, I, I really didn't understand our property until I had experienced about two or three summers and winters. And then Based on that experience and just going through the vineyard and, and really you know, getting the sense of, of exactly the sort of heat units that, that we got there, I then started mapping the soils to specific grape varieties. So on top of one of our hills, we have, a, we have a, a, an alluvial deposit of river rock. And it looks like, I mean, if, if you could just go there and take a picture of these vines in cobblestones, it would look like chatting with the pop. Oh, cool. I mean, it's, it is, and it is cool. It's beautiful. And, and uh, this particular part of the vineyard is ideally suited to those varieties. So we have head prune, Grenache, and Morved on top of the hill. And then on the Northern slopes where there's just a little cooler, you know, a little, the aspect there has a little more shade and, and slightly, you know, again, we have no shortage of sunlight, but, 
what we do have is, uh, you know, just a little shade in there from the, from the late afternoon sun. And then we plant the earlier ripening Syrah on those slopes. And then on the, on the, the very north end of the vineyard, again, roughly the same elevation, we have a totally different soil type there. So it's not alluvial and it's, it's all volcanic. And so we have, you know, fractured basalt. And then the, the most shallow part of the vineyard in terms of, of the, the soil composition, because we basically have, you basically look at, you know, the, the soil profile of, you know, fractured basalt. And then that over the years, you, you have that little bit of volcanic ash and dust, the lust soil. So whatever is, you know, swept up there by the wind. And where that soil is deep, it's slightly higher pH and has a little more, it has, has great, great, um, you know, drainage. And so where that soil is deep, we plant Merlot, that, you know, big cluster grape variety. It really, you know, likes a lot of, uh, a lot of nutrition. And, uh, and again, when I say a lot of nutrition, I, I had to qualify that a lot of nutrition for what we have, because our, we, we really have very poor soils which are perfect for wine grapes that don't require, you know, a huge amount of nutrition. And then slightly higher up the hill gets a little more, you know, sunlight exposure and the soils become a little more shallow. We have Cabernet Franc. And then right at the very, very top of the hill that has the longest growing season, we have Cabernet Sauvignon. So the fruit gets beautifully ripe. And then once we get, you know, after the equinox and the, you know, our daylight hours really start to plummet, we're not necessarily gaining a lot of sugars, but what we do is we have hang time, and that's when the Cabernet really, you know, starts to, to show beautifully. Well, David, I can certainly say for a guy who's got a background in medieval literature, you sure know how to go deep on terroir. <laughs> I love terroir. <laughs> I, I, it shows. It really does. Now, I also understand that you're very passionate about organic and sustainable uh, viticulture. Why is that so important to you? Well, you know, for us, it, it's it's the you know it's our lifestyle. It's the way we live. You know, we we want to when we you know leave our our little patch of dirt. You know, I want to be the sort of steward that you know that that land is left in better shape than when we got it. And then you know, just very basically and fundamentally, you know, farming organically where we are, where we don't have the sort of you know, mildew pressures and moisture issues that they have in areas that are close to, you know, to the ocean, we just can do it. We can do it, you know, fairly easily. And, you know, I've convinced farmers that I have worked with over the years, you know, let me, let me take over the farming of this and I will do it organically and I, I can show you it can be done. And we just have to put a lot less inputs into it. We don't have to, you know, drive the tractors as often. We just, but what we have to do is go out and spend time in the vineyards and work with Mother Nature because we always have these breezes and they're, they're very, very dry. You know, our air is, is not moist, so it's very dry air. And then, uh, you know, when we do have some moisture or some heavy dew, we leaf strip on the east, you know, side of the, the canopy. And so we bring in that early morning sunlight we we work with nature just to you know to you know, so we don't have to go out there and uh, use mildicides and it's very easy to farm yeah. organically and I, I think just the beauty of going out there and you know popping a grape in your mouth you don't have to worry about you know the only thing you have to worry about is making sure you don't put a fly in there with it right and you can let your kids run around the vineyard and you don't have to worry yeah. 
And I love it. I, I, I do. And, you know, we do grow some uh, table grapes for the kids and for visitors that are coming. I can always just say, oh, you can go pick them. They're, you know, they are absolutely, there's no, you know, residue of anything on those, on those uh, berries. How cool. How fun. Now, I also understand you're splitting your time between Washington and Willamette Valley. Yes. Where I think you're making some Pinot Noirs there. You're a pretty busy guy. What's going on in Willamette <laughs> with uh, Owen Rowe? So, you know, the Willamette is really exciting. And it's where Owen Rowe started. And so I basically, I came up from the central coast of California, you know, back basically, you know, just after Domaine Drone had come in. And I was curious to see what, you know, what would attract this great French family, you know, to the Willamette Valley. And uh, very quickly, you know, just saw a a breed of viticulturists that I hadn't experienced in California. And it was just basically kind of like, you know, what I shared with you in, in, in the Yakima Valley, you know, to grow here, there's still a very, very much in, you know, a, a sense that you want to grow sustainably. And if you're going to do that, especially in the Willamette where, you know, the growing conditions are not like what we just shared with in Yakima Valley, where we do have moisture and uh, we have real weather, we can get, you know, sometimes up to, you know, over, you know, three feet of, uh, of precipitation a year. And, uh, and so we average about 36 inches of rain a year. And so you do have to go out there and spend a lot of time if you want to be sustainable and where you leaf strip and just make sure that your, you know, your yields aren't too much to, you know, so you can ripen that fruit in time to get it off the vines before the, uh, you know, before the, the fall rains. And I love that. I love that, you know, sense of kind of, it was it was very dynamic at the time you know really was it was the holy grail pinot noir you know is is, is the grape is the expression of the willamette and uh, and it's one of my favorite grape varieties and so you know basically that the you know the sense of quality that you got out of the willamette the camaraderie with you know the the founders of the willamette industry was was is just alive and strong and now you have second and third generation and there's still this great collegiality in the Willamette Valley so it's it's an area that I love being part of being part of the wine community here and uh, you know for me there's there's no Pinot Noir like the Willamette Valley Pinot Noir. Well you know it's funny that you mentioned the multiple generations a couple years ago I was visiting uh, Vero Duran at uh, Domaine Duran, and there was a young lady who was walking on a board across a large stainless steel vat with a scrub brush and brush. I said, Devero, who, who is, who's that young lady up on that catwalk? She says, oh, that is my daughter. She is a cellar rat and she has to <laughs> learn, you know, and, and it's just, it was so wonderful that, you know, you see the, the next generation coming up of some of these wonderful brands. Now, speaking of brands, uh, you're, you're a pretty busy guy. You have, as I understand it, brands within brands. Uh, what's that all about? What's each, I understand each label is unique, tells a story. Yeah, so we, we basically, you know, it's funny because when I had started the wine, the the first wine label, and, uh, you know, I, yeah, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't even bottled it yet. And, you know, we were decided on a package and what we wanted to do. And, you know, coming from Ireland, and I named the winery after a great Irish, um, you know, revolutionary, Owen Rowe O'Neill, plummet descendant of, 
And for me, I, I wanted a name, I wanted something that meant something to me. And Owner O'Neill was a general in the Spanish army and he, he helped rally the Irish against uh, Oliver Cromwell primarily. And, um, and so, you know, he stood for principle and excellence. And that's what I wanted in, uh, you know, in the wines that I was part of. And so I decided, so here's, you know, the Cabernet Franc that we're, we're going to have. You can see this beautiful old image on the, the label. So I wanted, when I was bringing these wines out to the market, I'll just tell the story of, you know, of some aspect of either Owen or O'Neill or the soils or the stories behind uh, behind the labels, because I never thought I would grow. And so I, I just assumed that every single bottle of wine that I would make go at hand sell and I'd tell the story behind it. And so it wasn't necessarily meant to be a commercial enterprise uh, from the get go. But then as you, you know, as you basically, and it wasn't even an expansion as opportunities arose, you know, and I've been doing this for over 30 years now, uh, you just, you know, you accept them. And so we had, we had a, a you know, after 9-11 and the great market really, it really was depressed for a couple of years. We had a couple of uh, vineyards come to us and say, you know, we can't sell our fruit. You know, these wineries have canceled contracts. We're just going to literally deliver fruit to your door. We're not going to charge you. And as well, wow. I, well, great, but I, I really don't even have room for those grapes. And, uh, and so as I was talking to the growers, I was like, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we make it in a, in a sharecropping fashion? So I'll, I'll make the wine and we'll split the profits. And, uh, and wow. so with the growers, and so we formed basically a growers guild and we, we called the sharecroppers and then eventually we changed it to growers guild. And that became a partnership between us and the vineyards and it developed this beautiful synergy you know they would deliver fruit i would make the wine and instead of retiring a bunch of oak barrels i just used these neutral barrels that had no influence at all to the flavor of the wine but just you know kind of imparted that that little textual component that you get out of uh, barrel aging and then you know we bottled the wine and split the profits with the growers and that became its own brand that is the growers guild and it is uh, it was meant to be a class or value proposition and it was pinot noir from oregon and cabernet sauvignon from washington so kind of brands within brands and that brand is is now larger than o and row wow that <laughs> my mind is completely blown that <laughs> now when you do this the brand and, and we said it, it's the the, so guild, it's the growers guild the yeah. growers guild the growers guild but so when you're talking company. when you're talking about the growers guild are any of those wines vineyard specific or are we talking about different vineyards just uh putting all their pinot noir into one bottling and in the Cabernet Sauvignon and do certainly the the latter, yeah. So even though there were early years, they were they were single vineyards. We decided, you know, we we wanted to leave this opportunity open to all. And, uh, and it was it was you know I didn't have any any capital to you know to pay these poor farmers who you know had no home for their fruit, but you know they benefited by probably making about fifty percent more than they would have had they just gone out to the spot market and tried to right. sell those grapes. Or a hundred percent more than they would have by not maybe, doing anything. Right. You know, right. so yeah. very interesting. It's kind of, un, it reminds me a little bit of the co-ops 
that yeah. you see around France yeah. and yeah. under the same yeah. kind of idea that they're all, I don't want to say donating, that's not the right word, but they are all uh, providing the fruit yeah. Uh, yeah. to the enterprise and then splitting the profits. That's right. Wow, that that is that is really cool. Now, I also uh, heard that, and, and literally through the grapevine, if you will, that your Irishness shows through <laughs> in your brands. Uh, what is that about? So, you know, again, I, I wanted, I wanted a, a, a label and, a, and, you know, something that meant something to me. And, you know, and, and really, you know, quite, quite uh, you know, kind of bluntly, when I, when I was first making the wine and, and I worked for other wineries and it's like, you know, there's, this is a lot of work. This is really a lot of labor. I mean, you're, you're, you, you basically, you get up early in the morning, you're working in vineyards. Then eventually after doing, you know, nine to 10 months of hard labor, then the work begins and you have to bring the grapes in. And uh, we, you know, we're, we're, we're almost archaic with the way that we make our ONRO wines. We de-stem, but we, we, we use this incredibly gentle destemmer that just knocks the individual berries from the cluster. Mm. We have almost 100% whole berry fermentation with all of our red wines. We punch down manually by hand so that... Uh, you, you know, know they have machines it. that'll do that now. I know, but it's, <laughs> you know, we also aren't nearly as gentle as we are, you know, by doing it, you know, um, by punching down by manually by hand. And you really, again, it's like organic farming. You have to be out there to see what mother nature is telling you. You have to be in every fermenter so you can smell what's going on. And then, you know, you, we rack by gravity into barrel and uh, we only do a single vacuum when it's in barrel and then eventually it gets bottled and all of that work and all that labor is like, you know, you, you almost have developed a bond between that wine and you and so really it's something that had to mean something to me and so every label that i have has a story and we'll we'll obviously we have a couple of wines that we're going to share and i'll Absolutely. share those stories with you but you know they're very much part of the owen Rowe name and identity and story and you know he is a real person and he had a real struggle and so you know these labels will uh, share that uh, and a brand identity with, with the world. Well, David, since you brought up that we have a couple bottles to try, we're coming up on my favorite part of the podcast. <laughs> What's in your glass? <laughs> so uh, we have two beautiful wines, and, and, and I do want to find out the story behind these labels. This is a podcast, so not a video cast, so people can't see the labels. We have two wines. Which one would you like to start with? I think we should start with the uh, Sinister Hand. Which I don't even know how to describe the, <laughs> the label on this. I, I can't. It, it's to me, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. It looks like a severed hand inside a, <laughs> some body armor of That's some right. sort. Well, and uh, you know, David, I think I think you need some help, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> so this is kind of interesting to have on a label of a wine with a. Uh, it is interesting. You know, this is the 2019. Sinister hand from Columbia Valley. Is that yes? Uh, so primarily from Yakima Valley fruit. So uh, this is a Grenache-based um, wine. So it's okay. Grenache and Syrah, Morved, Cinso. You know, primarily you know Chateauneuf de Pop uh, grapes. Wow. And so the 
the you know the story behind the label is that you know my family crest is a bloodied severed left hand so left as in sinister so this wine is is basically a nod to the family heritage and i mean obviously i think a lot of irish people need help i mean if if you are going to embrace a, a severed appendage as your, you know, as your uh, coat of arms. There is something wrong with you anyway. Yeah, dude, but I think. <laughs> the, the, story, the story behind the label is is a lot of fun because supposedly there's a big feud in our family and they gathered all the warring factions together and they had a rowing competition. And whoever rowed across the lake that fronted the land that eventually became our ancestral home. Whoever touched that land first was given the land and the, supposedly all the wars would end. And my ancestor was in the, the boat and rowing. And before someone touches land first, he grabs his sword and he cuts off his own left hand and throws it ashore and it touches first. And this is before they invented lawyers. And so they, they gave him the land and somehow he lives and all of his descendants on their coat of arms, mine included, have a bloodied severed left hand. Now you had asked, you had mentioned about this, this little, you know, the gauntlet, the little uh, armored hand. So it, when I first designed it, I actually had a wedding ring on the hand, and I thought, "Oh no, this is going to be the divorce wine." I don't want it to be. <laughs> so we covered it over with the little bit of coat of arms there. The with with the armor, that is. Well, I got. I'm sorry, but I can't leave this pun. <laughs> it's, you got to give your ancestors a hand. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it's what I loved. I remember when. I was kind of first introduced to Southern Rhone wines. And, and I was always just captivated by the fact that, you know, you, you could go to the Northern Rhone and if it was red, it was Syrah. If you went to, you know, Burgundy, it was Pinot Noir. And, you know, if you, if you went to Saint-Emilion, maybe it was Cabernet Franc. And of course, right bank Bordeaux was Cabernet Sauvignon. And, but you go to, to the Southern Rhone and, they're all just kind of proprietary names and they're all, you know, their hillsides or their story. And of course, then you had, you know, Bonnie Dune with his uh, old yeah. telegram and, you know, and, yeah. and I, I love that. I thought, well, my Chateau Neuf de Pop is going to be Sinister Hand. And this is, this is um, a serious, you know, Chateau Neuf style blend from our hillside. So those cobblestone, you know, head pruned vines that, you know, we, we spoke about earlier, but then also some, you know, really classic uh, sites in Yakima Valley. So the, the Morved is from Olson Vineyard at the base of Red Mountain that gets a lot of heat. And, but I think, I think if I were to describe the Sinister Hand, you know, it's, it's a great varieties that have, you know, really not a lot of tannin. You know, you don't get a lot of tannins out of Grenache. So it's very enveloping texturally, a really bright fruit and uh, just, you know, lovely natural acidity. The Cinso part of it can be a little leathery. So I do 100% carbonic fermentation with it. So I actually put it, you know, I don't de-stem. I ferment in a stainless steel enclosed tank and we allow a, 
the, the carbon dioxide that is given off during the primary fermentation to stay in the in the fermenter and as a result right. a lot of fruitiness right. so you know we really are very mindful of making this a fruit forward you know very exuberant red wine that is not meant to be just another red blend it's really meant right. to be a chateau neuf style and, blend and before i i jump in and, and try to describe this wine myself uh, for a lot of our listeners who may not know about carbonic fermentation, you just you, you briefly described it about keeping the CO2 in. But it's basically what you do is so in a normal fermentation, you'll have the yeast cells that will feed on the juice, the sugar in the grape juice and it produces alcohol. And then the carbon dioxide is, is you, know, ex, you know, sent out to the atmosphere. In a carbonic fermentation, you basically have an intracellular fermentation. So because you're, you're not rupturing, you're not even removing the, the, um, the grapes from the stems, the yeast will, will permeate through the skins and will ferment from the inside out. And, and it really produces, a, it really kind of enhances the fruitiness of that grape. It's not necessarily the sort of thing you'd want to do with a very tannic grape variety like Cabernet Sauvignon, but I've done it with a few and I've just loved it. I've loved it, especially with Grenache. And of course with the Cinso, it just, it makes it, you know, from taking the, the, you know, kind of the natural fruitiness that, you know, that might be kind of plummy, a little leathery, and it makes it, you know, much more red fruited and exuberant. And, and so you, you'll get, you know, more raspberry notes. Yes, and, exactly. And, and yeah. Rather than kind of the darker notes. And it just makes it much more lighter on its feet. And as a right. blending component with all those other grape varieties, it just is, you know, kind of a perfect fit in, in, the, in the blend. You know, I do. I love the raspberry in this, but I also sort of like that dark cherry undertone that I'm getting. And I just think... Mm-hmm. Wow, I just I need I need a, a roast duck. <laughs> I just think this would be a yeah. great moving buddy. I agree. Duck. I totally agree. Right? You know, it's so Isn't funny. That... Whatever whatever I see or duck, I'm always because you know, obviously I used to have cherries and you know, we live in cherry country. So I'm looking for cherries. I think cherries and duck are just perfect together. I do too. So I agree. This would be a this would be perfect with roast. Wow. And what I love about it is this beautiful balance in it. It's it's an elegant style of mm-hmm. a Southern Rhone wine. And, and I adore Southern Rhone wines. I'm just crazy about them. But this is a, a very, and, and again, a young wine, right? 2019. That's right. And I've had mine open for about an hour. But I am really impressed with how elegant and light on its feet it is for being so young and just very well integrated. Well done. Thank you. Really so well much. done. I, I appreciate it, Scott. Now, I think the um, the sapage and especially you know the the Grenache part of it, the Grenache is key to this blend. And uh, and you know what I've found with Grenache, no matter how rough you are with it, it just you know it's like this Labrador puppy. It just comes running back to you, <laughs> you in the face, and it's just. It, it's a very pleasing grape variety, and it's I, it's a grape that I just love working with. I love Grenache. Uh, it, and it's a beautiful expression of it. And, 
having been the owner of many Labrador puppies, that is a great <laughs> description of Grenache and one that I will probably steal from you and use uh, in the future. Um, so let's let's move on to the next wine, which has, I think, a little bit more soothing of a label. <laughs> it looks, uh, is, is this uh, a castle or... So- so the the label on the on the again it's a podcast so you can't see it. so it's right, right. it's the ruins of Drum Lane Abbey in uh, in County Cavan. So Drum Lane, there were nine O'Reilly abbeys around this beautiful lake in uh, in in basically in central County Cavan, which is which is one of the counties that borders. Um, now what is Northern Ireland. So it was, it's part of Ulster, which was traditionally part mm-hmm. of Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. And then during the separation, it became part of the Republic of Ireland. And so uh, Drum Lane is, is on the shore side of that, that land that uh, the fellow cut his hand off to touch. And so the round tower that became our ancestral home, it was used by Owen Rowe O'Neill as his base of operations against Cromwell. And the round tower is about, um, is a little more than a thousand years old. And, uh, and the walls are about five feet thick. And so this is one of the abbeys that, uh, you know, that our family had supported over the years. And Owen Rowe O'Neill uh, would, would go there to, uh, you know, seek solace uh, during quiet times that, you know, whenever he could. But um, so this graces our Cabernet Franc, which is from the Yakima Valley. So this is, uh, you know, definitely a treat for me to share this because I have now, you know, it was the grape that really kind of lured me to Eastern Washington because I had worked with, you know, with the block. I was interested in Cabernet Franc, but I didn't necessarily know it in the new world, the way it grew there, because, you know, again, there's no shortage of sunlight. So what we do is we, you know, to, to, um, to find the right location, it can't be Valley floor and it can't be, you know, too high up in the hill because it needs, it needs to produce enough leaf. So it'll, you know, protect the clusters from uh, sunburn and excessive uh, sugar accumulation. We make sure that we don't treat it like Cabernet Sauvignon. So where we grow it, it's not where we would grow Cabernet Sauvignon. So slightly deeper soils, soils that have slightly more water retention capacity. And so you think right bank or even Loire Valley. I mean, that's, those are the areas. If you look at Cabernet Franc, where it's grown in the old world, they have they've basically isolated these, you know, this grape to areas that either are maybe it's not the best location for Merlot. So in San Emilion, maybe a slightly warmer site, or if it's if it's more right bank, then it's going to be because it ripens earlier than Cabernet Sauvignon. So they'll they'll choose a site that might be, you know, that might be too cool for Cabernet Sauvignon. So. Traditionally, it's grown on clay, clay soils. I like it with the with the less soils. Kind of mimics the clay soils a little bit. So, you know, I tend to choose locations that have a little more less and uh, and soil depth. And then we make sure that we don't let the sugars go wild. Yeah. So, you know, I'm usually you know picking this at as low as 22 and a half bricks to, you know, really the high is about 24 bricks. 
And I want to preserve that little bit of forest floor. I'm not trying to make this a Cabernet Sauvignon. It doesn't see new French wood. We usually put it in the wood that has already previously been used for another vintage. And so then that way we have a little more, you know, just kind of pure varietal character. And I think those areas that grow Cabernet Franc, you know, by itself are really special because, you know, they're not, they're not overly warm and they're not too cold. And so it's, it's one of those Goldilocks grape varieties that, you know, it can't be too ripe and it can't be too cold. If it's, because it, it's, it's the pyrazines, those green compounds that are in this varietal, you know, really accentuated when, when it's super cool. And then when it's too warm, they're burnt out. And, you know, it's, it's like a weedy Cabernet Sauvignon. So it has to grow in the right location. And when I discovered one block in, the, I'll never forget, it was the year 2000. I love working with this, with this grape variety. It, you know, for me, I had to go back and find, you know, the right place for it. And, uh, and now we ended up, you know, buying a vineyard that had Cabernet Franc growing on it. And it's where our state winery is today. Well, bullseye. <laughs> this is Goldilocks. It's bullseye. Now, you, for regular listeners of the podcast, we have been trying quite a few Cabernet Francs lately, which is great. I'm so happy to see Cab Franc come into its own. Um, it, it does wax and wane in and out of favor. You know, most people yeah. know it as a blending grape right. in, in Bordeaux and, and even in California. But this one, well, first of all, before I, I tell you what I think about the wine, can you tell me a little bit about the name of the wine? So, yes. So the name is Rosa Mystica. Now, the hills behind our winery are the Rosa Hills. And uh, the irrigation source becomes the lateral that comes out of the river is the the Rosa irrigation, you know, canal. And when, when I was kind of deciding on a, on a name for this, um, I was emailed a certificate, a wedding certificate of Owen O'Neill and his wife is Rosa. What? And, and not only, so Rosa O'Neill, O'Doherty, who became O'Neill, not only did she marry, you know, the, fellow that we had named the winery after they got married on our my wife and I our wedding day and uh, so you know the same day and it's like okay this lady has to feature into our label and so we thought well we're above we're kind of way in the hills above the canal so I really wanted to accent the fact that we were high up and so we named it Rosa Mystica. Very cool great you're right David all of your Wines do have stories behind <laughs> them. Stories, that's right. <laughs> wow, I love it. I wish we had more to try. <laughs> so this wine, Cap Franc, and the the first thing, just the first thing that hits me, and, and I don't really know how to describe this without giving the wrong impression. I certainly don't because it's a beautiful wine, but it's like dark cherries jubilee. Oh. I don't want people to think sweet. It's not. No, yeah. no, not sweet at all, but it's just got that dark cherry richness to it that just sits there and seduces you and again a, a pretty wine very clean uh very well delineated but that i, I remember having 
having a discussion with a wine writer once years and years ago. And uh, he was talking mm-hmm. about the typicity of our Cabernet Franc. You know, is it Loire Valley or is it Bordeaux? I'm like, no, no, no. This is Yakima Valley. This has nothing to do with either the new world or the old world. This right. is very right. site specific where you can get that beautiful expression of fruit. So I totally agree, Scott, that it has those cherry notes are in there. There's also lavender notes. There's also, you know, pine needles. There's forest floor. You know, there's some tobacco leaf. I mean, it's got everything that right, you would right. want. Of and, and a touch of chocolate in there. There's it's got the chocolate. Chocolate, cocoa. I'm trying to figure out. Yeah, but it's it's maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's not cherries to believe. Maybe it's a chocolate covered dark cherry. <laughs> there's something. I mean, it's just a lovely wine. And just really sings. This is the kind of wine I could be very happy drinking this on its own. And and also, you know, pairing it, I've got to think about what I'd want to have it with. Again, I'd love maybe some lamb. I think lamb would go really well with this. We could even go back to our duck, Mm -hmm. uh, given the cherries. But just a lovely, lovely bottle of wine. And, uh, And I love the story behind Rosa Mystica. Now, I, I, before I let you go, I, I have to ask a, a question that has been bugging me for the entire podcast. <laughs> Where's your lilt? You know, it's so funny. When I first, you know, because I grew up in Belfast in Northern Ireland. And if you've ever listened to anyone from Northern Ireland, you know, you very quickly realize it's like, I don't understand. Is this person even speaking English? <laughs> I have no clue what he's saying. And so... You know, just in order to be understood, I, I end up just naturally. I mean, as a 14-year-old, I think you know, my older, some of my older siblings sound like they just got off the boat. And, uh, and I think just my age and just my determination to be understood. And, you know, and it wasn't that I was trying just to fit in. It was literally, it was survival. <laughs> <laughs> and, and again, before I let you go, you said uh, your older siblings. I did note that you were one of 12. I'm one of 12 children. Yes. Where are you? Seven. I'm number seven. That's okay. why I'm, that's why I'm normal. It's perfect. So, You're in the middle. You're the peacekeeper the of the, <laughs> of the clan. And let's face it. Let's face it, David. That's a, that's a clan. <laughs> you have your own clan. Well, it, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today. Thank you for sharing your knowledge. Thank you for sharing your stories, Severn hand and all. <laughs> It was great, and I adore your wines. These are fantastic. We tried the 2019 Sinister Hand Red Wine from Columbia Valley, uh, again, based off the Southern Rhone region of, of France with those varieties, and then the Cabernet Franc, the 2018 Rosa Mystica. Great name, and this is from the Yakima. Yes. And, Thank you, Scott. It was my pleasure. Cheers. Thank Take you. care. Well, that'll do it for this episode of The Vine Gaia, a WTOP news podcast. The music you heard is Wishful Thinking by Dan Lebowitz, available in the YouTube audio library. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter and catch my Wine of the Week shows every Friday on WTOP and WTOP.com. And remember, until the next time, do good, drink well.